Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 28 of the North Meet South web podcast. All right, folks, we are shooting from the hip today. We've got a half hour exactly to record this thing. So timers at the ready and go. All right. Michael asked a little bit before the show started if anybody on Twitter had anything specific to ask. So we've got a couple listener questions that we're going to get to. Before we get to that, I have got one thing that I wanted to talk about specifically today, eloquent observers. Michael, did you have anything you wanted to talk about specifically or are we just going for it? Let's go for it. Okay, let's go for it. Here we go. Eloquent observers. All right. There are times in your Laravel project development life cycle. I don't know. I'm going to get at this. What I'm trying to say is there are moments where you will need to know when a model is saving or creating or updating, and you will need to do something at that point. So thankfully, Laravel ships with uh, some events that will fire when these models are being created or updated or whatever. So I think the events that fire are creating, created, updating, updated, deleting, and deleted. I think those are the six, those are the six events that get fired. And saving and saved. Saving and saved? Yeah. Isn't that creating and created? Isn't that the same thing? No, saving saving and saved fires for both creating and updating. Okay. Good to know. See, I did not know that. I already learned something. So there's eight events. All right. So it's handy to be able to hook on to these things at certain times and be able to fire events uh, or not fire events, catch those events essentially and be able to do things. I will give a specific instance. When I have something that is updating or actually I suppose it would be a saving because really when it's creating or updating, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to have almost like what you would call a computed value. So I have a number of timestamps that I have on this specific record. And based on what those timestamps are, I want to set a status on that record. Now you would say, well, why don't you just use a accessor or something like that where you can say, get status attribute. And then you can just, it will dynamically grab that, you know, compute that value for you on that specific record when you're, when you're looking at it. And that would be fine. The only problem is you can't query by a computed, you know, by a accessor. So you can't say, grab me all of the records where the status is pending documents or something like that. So I needed to have an actual value that was saved in the database. So it would make it easy for me to be able to query against these records. So what it used to be is that you would on the model itself, you would hook into the boot method on that model and you would override it. And then what you could do is you could say, listen for the creating event. And then you would, that creating event has the model. Uh, It will give you an instance of the model and then you can do whatever you need to do on it. The problem with that was it looked really messy. It would go in your model and if you had anything that was complex at all, it just got kind of nasty. So one of the things that I've been using recently, which is pretty cool, is observers. So what you can do is you can essentially say in like a service provider of some sort, you can give your model. So let's say you are observing a user. So you'd say in your app service provider or something, you could say user colon colon observe. And then you pass in a class called something like a user observer. So you can create a user observer. And all it is, is your methods are the names of those events that you're listening for. So you would have a method called creating. 
And what will happen is at the point where your user model is creating, it will pass you an instance of that user and then you can do whatever you need to do on it. So you could, before it gets created, while it's creating or while it's saving, I suppose, or whatever it is that you're gonna do, you could say status, uh, and then you could have a method called get status or determine status. And then at that point, you could look at all your timestamps, you could set that attribute, and then you just pass it on and it will save it. So it makes it much easier and much cleaner to be able to observe these events for a particular model and then put custom behavior onto those events. So when that event fires, give me an instance of the model that's saving or creating or updating and then modify the attributes however I want to and then, um, and then continue on. So there are, you know, there are of course a couple different ways. There's mutators, there's a couple different things that you could do. Another one where I have is, for instance, I have a flame and there is a path that references a set of documents that go with that record. And what I need to do is if they've updated uh, the claim number, I need to go update the path that belongs to it as well. So I have to actually go rename that folder. So on the updating event, I will go rename that folder, update the path to the document on the record, and then save it. So Eloquent Observers, they're really cool, and uh, you should definitely use them. It's a really clean pattern and uh, pretty sweet. Yeah, well, it's how uh, the a couple of the packages that I wrote have behaviors basically hooking into those things and as you say it's once you get past one or maybe two you know listeners inside your eloquent model it's probably time to start looking at extracting out either to a single observer class or i think recently maybe even in laravel 5.4 you can define an array of events on your model and then map them to specific you know, listener classes. So instead of having one observer that handles all eight of those events, you could have eight separate classes that handle one each. So that's another thing that you could consider as well. Um, but yeah, it's all about just cleaning up that model and making sure it doesn't get too unwieldy. Yeah. Yeah. For me, like I find a lot of times what I would do is in the instance where I have to actually rename the documents or the folder or whatever, what I would do is in my, in my observer, my observer will just do the check to say like, hey is dirty that's another cool thing that if you don't know about uh you can check to see if the attributes that are on your model are dirty meaning have they been changed are they different than the ones that are in the database and if they are then you can perform some action so i say like is claim number dirty and if claim number is dirty then what i'll do is instead of having all the logic to actually update the folder names and update the path in there i'll just dispatch a job so i say hey job go dispatch and then all the logic for doing that is in the job and then i can unit test that job by itself so when i'm when I'm actually doing my test, I don't have to create a record and then go update it and make sure that it did what it was supposed to do. I just test the job in isolation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. So, okay, three things. Number one, eloquent observers. Number two, is dirty, which by the way, you can just say, is it dirty in general? So does the model have any attributes that are different than those that are in the database? That will return true. You can pass it a string. So I could say, is claim number dirty or is dirty and then pass in a string claim number. Is the claim number dirty and will return true or false? or you can pass it an array of values. Is claim number or client ID or doc path dirty? And if any of those are dirty, it will turn true. So um, that's a pretty versatile method. And uh, the last thing that I was going to say, which I said something about this on Twitter, is that eloquent sync is demon magic. And uh, you agreed. <laughs> I did say this. Yes, I mean, it's, an, it's really, it's yeah. an incredible feature that yeah. uh, it used to be such a pain. If you've ever had to do this without sync, it's a nightmare. Have you ever had to do this without sync where you had to write your own? It's a huge pain. 
Yeah, no, thankfully, thankfully, I've always had sync there, so it's been all right. But yeah, I can imagine like the stuff that it does under the hood. Go on. I'm the one who's been dealing with it recently, but I've been talking a lot already. So I'm going to let you talk about this multi, you know, many to many relationship and what sync does. So let me let me see if you can come up with an example off the top of your head, Michael. Top of my head. So, I mean, syncing is kind of handy because what it's going to do is it's going to go and look at your, I guess, your pivot table for any data that's related and based on what you pass into the sync method it will it will either attach or detach whatever is in there based on what you've passed into that sync method so it makes it really easy if you don't want like if you're basically just toggling things but it will also handle additional data as oh, well that's true. I believe. The pivots so, will, yeah you know if you had yeah if you've got extra pivot columns you can specify, you know, on a specific thing. And what it's what it's doing under the hood, basically, is pulling everything out of the database and doing the comparisons between what you passed into the sync method with what is already in, in the database and then updating everything for you. So you don't have to do that. But this is another one of those places where Laravel just handles all of that boilerplate cruft for you. Yeah, as a concrete example for you, I had a list of attorneys and then I had a list of states. There was two different tables. List of attorneys, list of states. And I needed to know what states those attorneys practice law in, for example. So this is an example of a many-to-many relationship. Uh, more than one lawyer might practice law in Alaska, for example. And also, a lawyer could practice law in multiple states. So you have the attorney table, you have the states table, and then you have a pivot table between them. And the pivot table, what it will do is it has a column for attorney ID and a column for state ID. And what it'll do is it'll store a new record for each one of those relationships. So I have attorney one practices law in Alaska. So it'd have uh, attorney ID one, state ID one. He also practices law in Illinois. So it'd have another record for attorney ID one, state ID five or something. And then he also practices law in Ohio. So attorney ID one, state ID 17, something like that. So it'd have three different records on that pivot table. So in the past, it would have been a huge pain to do that. But now all you have to do is you say attorney, states, sync and then pass the three ids of the states that you want to belong to that attorney and it will just do it for you and then if you if you needed to update it later you just call sync again with the different set of ids and it will remove any that are not or you will remove any that used to be there and add any that aren't there currently so it's just incredible and there's some there's some options on there too you can say toggle and it will, if it's there, it will take them off or, or vice versa. It's really, really neat. If you haven't used it before, if you've been scared of multi, you know, uh, many to many relationships in the past, Laravel does truly make this extremely easy. Yeah. And always, always look at the docs for the relationship, especially the eloquent relationships documentation, because I always forget which methods to call yep. on which relationship, whether it's attach or detach or associate or dissociate. I always forget whether it's save or create or, or whatever. And, and things like this sneak into the docs, sometimes sight unseen. So always read the docs. Always, always, always. This is why I use Dash. Uh, you use something else. What is it that you use? Yeah. I use devdocs.io. So it's like an offline thing that, that runs in the browser. So it uses local storage or whatever to make it available when, when you don't have an internet connection. But it's it's super handy cool. as well. Yeah, so there's a couple tools for you. You know, Dash makes it super easy. I use it all the time. Um, Caleb Parizio. Is it Parizio? Porzio? Porzio. Sorry, Caleb. Yeah. I had a great post out there this week about Tinker. Laravel Tinker, and I did not know that you can use that to look up docs 
for PHP stuff. So if you're in Tinker, I'm gonna try this right now, live on the air, PA Tinker. And I'm gonna say docs array uh, only. Oops, sorry, that's an, that's a, that's anything I think is the thing. Let's say array intersect. Dang it, what am I doing? Isn't that what it was? What am I doing wrong? I'm not sure, I didn't actually get a chance PA to read. PA Tinker docs array, oh great, I'm gonna have to go look up, nope. Crap. All right. Well, I'm going to have to go look it up now. Caleb, here we go. Back to the Titan blog. Dang it. <laughs> I have to download the manual, it says. Okay. In any case, you're going to need to check out this blog post. It's pretty stinking awesome about uh, Tinker and some really cool stuff that you can do with it. I just had an on air fail. My apologies. Now you know how it works behind the scenes, <laughs> folks. Okay. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll do that. I, on, on that blog post, though, I, I haven't read it yet. I promise I'll read it. As soon as we finish recording, it's really but good. I have, I have, I have heard a lot from this Caleb character yes. recently. A lot of cool stuff. I've seen he's been very active across a few pull requests and on the internals mailing list recently. And I would keep a close eye on him. I think he's he's going to do something great in in this community sooner rather than later. I think. Yeah, he's an unsung hero right now. Caleb uh, has two hundred sixty followers on Twitter. Go give him some love. He's a really, really awesome guy. We'll have to have him on the show sometime soon. He's yeah. a recent Titan employee. And let's see, Daniel, uh, what is it? Who's the other guy? Colborn. Daniel Colborn. Colborn. Yeah. Yeah, C-O-U-L-B-O-U-R-N-E. Daniel Colborn. Why is he not coming up? I know I follow him. Anyway, yeah, Caleb and Daniel uh, are both at uh, Titan Co. And they have a new podcast called 20% Time. 20% Time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so uh, check those guys yep. out. They're doing some really cool work. And um, and yeah, check it out. Okay. Hey, we've got some of these listener questions we're going to hit here because we are like, let's see, we're halfway through? Yeah. We're halfway through. Okay, I'm going to let you take this first one. The first one was, how do you manage customer expectations? Uh, and I think, let me read the question specifically here. It was, uh, managing customer expectations, time to deliver working code, that a, a feature, you know, that a, a feature that they would perceive as easy actually isn't easy at all. How do you help them understand that? Um, you know, how do you handle timelines and things like that? So, what do you think? Yeah, um, I think first and foremost, in in my experience, now I've, I've had a bit of agency experience, and my current job is more it's more directly internally customer focused, but we also do some agency style work, and my main background or the, the longest position I've ever held was at an internet provider. So that was all, it was internal customers, but it was also servicing obviously the entire customer base of that provider. So I think first and foremost is communication. If you are, if you are open and honest and frank with your customers and you let them know, you know, as soon as you, as soon as you foresee that there might be a problem, if you're having difficulty in, in, um, you know, delivering something, or if you think there's a roadblock, or if you think there's a better way of approaching something, the most important thing that I've always found is to let your, your key stakeholders know and, man you know, the best way to manage someone is to communicate with them and just let them know exactly what's happening and why it's happening. Now and then you'll get some people that you could consider to be unreasonable in their expectations and they'll keep pressing you. And a lot of that is going to come down to pressures that they're under to deliver something. You know, they may be the person that you're liaising with, but they may have a board of directors or whatever else, um, you know, coming down on them to make sure that things are happening Sometimes you'll find in software development that you get given a deadline and then you have to start 
doing all of your scoping and you're developing and all of that kind of stuff. Like this just happens a lot. Um, I don't know maybe if that happens much for the kind of work that that you're doing, Jacob, but certainly when there's you know, especially in the agency kind of work where a marketing department will have said, okay, we're going to do a promotion on this date and this is our budget and these are all the things we now need to do. You know, you can get put under the pump in that regard. But I think a lot of the more sort of general things, you can kind of get away a little bit where there aren't deadlines to sort of direct clients and sort of help them make sure that they actually achieve what they need to achieve um, and do it in a nice way. So you're not you know, if they say, oh, this is easy, if you can explain it to them, not in technical terms, because clients don't care about technical terms for most, you know, unless they're a really technical client, they probably don't care. But certainly, yeah, communicate with them, um, make sure they understand the implications of what they're asking for um, and that kind of stuff. I think that is that is probably the biggest key. Yeah, I think we were listening, I was listening to a podcast recently, Matt Stauffer was talking about kind of some of the techniques they use to help manage uh, some of their customers' expectations and he was talking about having a phase two, like that's the, the key word they used, like phase two, and basically helping them prioritize the things that they want to get done by saying, okay, this is a phase one project, or this is a phase one feature, and then a phase, this is a phase two feature. And by allowing them to say, this is a phase two feature, you're basically allowing yourself to say, yes, this is important, but it's not so important that it should hold the product back from getting launched if we can't get it done by the time that you hit this deadline, right? So, and then what they ended up finding is that they put all that on a Trello board, kind of note note that concern, right? But a lot of times they launch it and it doesn't end up ever getting, you know, they don't ever come back to it because it just doesn't need to be done. And I feel like as developers, a lot of times you have that insight maybe to know this is a feature that nobody's going to use or or might be, you know, an extra nice to have but but the the client is concerned about it so it's almost like reminds me of the office are you an office fan an office us fan yes yes yeah so michael finds out that toby flenderson one of his techniques that he uses he's he lets people come back and vent to him and then he doesn't really do anything about it he just kind of people just want to be heard right yeah and so he has a stack of you know files that are complaints about michael and they're just they're in the special file in new york or whatever or that was dwight's complaints about jim <laughs> right and so I think that's kind of the same yeah, technique. Yeah. You know, the client wants to know that they're being heard. So you write it down and that's a phase two. And that doesn't mean it's never going to get done. It just means it's not priority right now. So for me, I think that's helped too, even with, you know, my primary job. I don't, sometimes I have to deal with that, but my secondary job, sometimes it's like, oh yeah, these features would be great. And so I'll write them down. But a lot of times you just kind of put them into a, yeah, that's version 2.0. That's my, that's probably yeah. mine. My phase two is version two. Yeah. Version 2.0. We'll get that into version 2.0. And a lot of times it just doesn't it doesn't end up happening. Yeah, and a lot of it as well, you know, people come to you and they're like, no, it really needs to be done. It really needs to be done. And if you've, you know, you've done all your scoping and there is an understanding of the work that needs to be undertaken, the best thing that I have found is is to ask, you know, if this really needs to be done, what are we bumping off of the list of other things that already need to be done and, and make the client then prioritize what they actually need? It is my job to prioritize the work based on, you know, what the client needs. So the client actually has to prioritize what they do need to have. Um, and, you know, they'll have, a, they'll have a certain budget and they'll have a certain, you know, time frame. And it's like, well, if you need me to do this, it's going to need to take priority over something else. Otherwise, it's it's either not going to meet your time budget or it's not going to meet your, you know, your financial budget. Right. Yep. Yep. Good point. Okay. Let's move on to packages that we install on every project. Uh, I'm going to let you start. So, sorry, let me, let me preface this with the question. The question was asked, you know, are there any go-to packages that you have that you install right away 
on every Laravel project that you start with. Um, and I do have some, yes, but I'll let you start here. Sure, there are, there are two that I, I always install. The first one is debug bar but I only have that installed in my local sort of development environment. So it's it's in there as a as a provider, it's all wired up, but I only actually um, register the provider in the local environment, which you can do inside your main app service provider. The other one that, I'd, that I have uh, set up is uh, Sentry. Sentry, very nice. Yeah, um, let's talk about that real quick, mm. where you're talking about environment specific uh, service provider loading. So how is it that you do that? So Michael has yeah. basically mentioned here, he'll pull it into his composer package, but we'll probably only in your dev dependencies, the debug bar. Yep. So he puts, he puts the debug bar, Laravel debug bar into his dev dependencies in his composer.json. And then that app service provider, since it's only in your dev dependencies, a lot of times what you'll do is when you install composer on a production box, you'll do composer install dash dash no dev. And what that will do is that will only install your production dependencies. Well, if you do that, but you are loading the debug bar in just your app.php, your application is going to crash because it's going to look for that service provider and, and uh, it's not going to exist. One of my coworkers just walked by with his shirt up to make me laugh. It worked. <laughs> uh, but your application is going to crash because it's going to be looking for that service provider and it's not installed. So Michael, what's your technique that you use to handle uh, you know, local only environment uh, service provider loading? Yeah. So in the app service provider that ships with the default Laravel application is, is always going to be loaded. So I use that not only for app specific things, but also when registering environment specific providers. So rather than putting into my config app.php providers array, I will in the register method of the app service provider, just, just put in a conditional, which is just app environment. So using the app global helper arrow environment. And then if you pass a environment name as a parameter to that environment method, so environment paren uh, local, you can then do a check there to say, you know, if my environment is local, do these things. And so within there, I will load the debug bar and things like that. So then you don't have to worry, as you say, about the, you know, the application exploding because it's trying to load a provider out of that main providers around your config app.php. Very good. I will also do uh, in mine, for instance, so I will say like if local or if, if app environment local, then load up the debug bar and load up these couple other helpers. Or then on the flip side of that, I'll say if app production then load in my Sentry service provider, maybe. The other thing that you can do is you can provide Sentry as a, well, actually technically what I'll, what I'll do is I'll always load the service provider, but then in my handler class, so your handler class is where you actually do reporting of any bugs and things like that. Uh, what I'll do in there is I will say, if app environment production, then app Sentry capture error exception or whatever, or capture exception and then pass the exception in there um, so that my my uh, application will only log errors to Sentry when I'm in production. Yeah. So for testing and things like that, it's, it's not going to mess with any of my, it's, Sentry's not going to be blowing up when I'm running my tests. Yeah, good. That's a good point to bring up there because I do that too. I yeah. do it the same way you do it, uh, app service provider. Yeah, cool. What other packages are you using? Uh, Laravel debug bar for sure. Sentry for sure. So this may be, I'm not sure if this is, this isn't controversial, but for people who haven't been with Laravel since like version four, something that was removed out of Laravel and moved to the Laravel collective in version five is the HTML and the forms stuff. Have you ever used that before? I did and I don't anymore. <laughs> okay. So I'm curious about this because one of the things that I really, really liked when I first came to Laravel in version four um, was route model binding. So 
what that means, and, and this was a pattern that I picked up from a Jeffrey Way series, is I'll typically have a create form and, or a create blade and an edit blade, and those share the same form. So I will make a partial, which is an underscore form, and I will put all my inputs in that partial and then what i'll do is i will just inject that between my form open when my form close and the only difference is that my create page has a it points to my you know my store method and my edit page will create uh, will point to my update method the one other thing that's different is that on my edit page i do route model binding so i will uh in my controller pass through uh, whatever it is that i'm trying to edit so say my user i'll pass through my user in there and what it'll do is it'll automatically fill in those fields with the values that i passed in for my user so if i have a username and a and a avatar or first name last name phone number address stuff like that it'll automatically fill in those values for me which is really really convenient uh so i like that and I've used it for forever. Adam Wathen also has one out there called Boot Forms, which you might want to check out. They work really well for Bootstrap. Both of these do. And I think that's why I like it. It's a really, really easy win as you just kind of pull these in, form open, and then text area, whatever. There are a couple of things that are gotchas that you have to get used to. Like, so if you specify an additional class parameter on these, you have to redeclare that you're using a form control if you're using boots uh, bootstrap for css and things like that but um yeah i think that's the thing that i miss the most i can use regular i can type it all out whatever but i miss the route model binding that's what i don't like having to implement myself it gets really uh verbose yeah. you have to say it used to be yeah it used to be a lot yuckier but yeah now now you can just use the old the old helper and just you know old paren the name of the input comma and then what i tend to do is like yourself, I will have a separate create and an edit.blade file with a shared form. And then in my create controller method, I will just pass an empty model Interesting. for whatever I'm uh, whatever I'm creating. So that way the form can always reference, you know, dollar user. And then obviously it'll just return null. So you have nothing in that value input. This is beautiful. I, I told somebody the mm. other day, I was like, this is why I do podcasting. Like I learn something every single time. That is genius. Yeah. I am. That makes my life so much easier. You you what, have no I will idea. write you a blog post. Would you like a blog Please. post? I'll write a Please. blog post for you today. Because that's exactly what I was okay. missing. That is the one piece I was missing. Like I needed to pass through a blank model. Of course, that's what you do. Of course, that's what you do. Did you just yeah. figure that out on your own or did somebody? No, I've, I've done this before. I tweeted about this before. Okay. So, I mean, you could theoretically just pass a new like uh, a new well maybe you couldn't no it'd have to be an eloquent model or something that that handles accessing the properties so yeah just a new user but i will i'll write you a nice blog post about it yeah okay awesome uh real quick shout out to the two people who wrote who wrote in those questions it would be arv soland uh asked the one about the packages and who was the one who asked about managing customer expectations let's see here. it was lamfruit i don't actually know his name but he knows who he is or she or she Let's see here. Uh, I'll give a quick shout yeah. out. Lamb fruit. Yeah, lamb fruit. Lamb. I don't know what their actual name yeah. is. So yeah. Thanks for asking questions, though. It's always uh, good to have people ask some questions that we can answer on air. Uh, that's our half hour. That's everything. So what episode are we on, Michael? Before we do run away, before we run away, we also have to say thank you to the two people who found their way onto our website and and sent us a donation. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so to JP Davey and to Alex Gates, who... I was looking in in Stripe just for something uh, for a payment that I'd received from a from a client, 
And I, I saw this money coming in there. I'm like, what is this? So yeah, thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, you know, we've we've never we've never mentioned that donation page on air. We'd sort of just spun it up and thought, you know, if anyone ever felt the need to send us money, then feel free to do so. So yeah, again, thank you. Um, we appreciate that. That will cover our uh, our hosting for the next couple of months, I think, for Simplecast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys very, very, very much. Much appreciated. Let me also just mention this quick here too. You know, if anybody is interested in sponsoring the show, we have very reasonable <laughs> entry level costs. Because really, honestly, at the end of the day, all we want to do is pay for our hosting. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show, give us a shout out on uh, Twitter and we'd love to work something out with you. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. This is episode 28. You can find show notes for this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 28. If you have any questions for future episodes, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at northsouthaudio. Please feel free to rate us up in your uh, iTunes or podcatcher of choice. Five stars would be awesome. Michael, so good talking to you as always. As we always. will see you in two weeks. Yes. See Bye. you later. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. This is episode 28. If you'd like the show notes for this show, you can find them at northsouth.audio. Is that right? North meets south. Every time. Audio. Every time. <laughs> uh, north meets south.audio slash 28. Is it 28? Am I right? 28. Yeah. Slash 28, my word. I can't even remember. Yeah. All right. Let me say this again. <laughs>